0: Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm here today with Jin Suha, He is a partner at the Learning Accelerator, manages the Parabola Project, and is also a columnist for EdSurge. So hi, Jinsu. It's so great to have you here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to having this conversation. Likewise, you are doing so much work with the Parabola Project around maximizing learning and wellness, especially during this time with COVID-19. And I know you were working on similar things previously with schools. Um, But can you share what that looks like now? I know you're looking at personalized pathways and interventions and whole child. So maybe we'll just start with the personalized pathways. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So uh, I'll kind of give a broad overview of the Parabola Project uh, and then dive into personalized pathways. So, um, you know, the Parabola Project came together when we realized we have education expertise, but uh, clearly there's a public health crisis going on with the pandemic. And so we partnered with an organization called Ariadne Labs, which is a joint center located between the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. So they were able to really bring their public health expertise, and we brought our education expertise, and we helped develop some tools for um, schools to help think through what it would mean to reopen and what it could Mm -hmm. look like. So we were endorsing reopening, but saying, you know, here are the things that you should consider. And if you are going to reopen, you know, like thinking about masks, distancing, um, and all of those things. And we started creating toolkits specifically around, you know, how do you start uh, creating a mask culture? So kids, you know, don't view it as an impediment, but like something that could be actually kind of fun, you know, like, can you make it personalized? Uh, you know, we saw one school uh, in Boston, had their art teacher actually had kids do self-portraits this year wearing masks. So it's like, you know, small things like that uh, to make it part of the culture um, and exciting. And then we also just heard from a bunch of schools that hadn't reopened, you know, like, what are these schools that have reopened? Like, what does it look like? Uh, so we started partnering with a lot of schools that did reopen, you know, just to document, you know, things like what does arrival and dismissal look like? Uh, what does lunch look like? You know, like what does teaching look like? You know, like I can't you know, sit next to a child like like normally mm-hmm. do. So what does this all look like on there? As we're starting to do this work, uh, we're also documenting, you know, what does teaching like really look like? You know, we know about simultaneous learning and how hard that is for teachers to teach both in-person um, students and also some kids remotely. And, you know, how do you give them a really solid experience on there? Uh, remote instruction is just really hard. We know that there's just a different pedagogy behind it. And most teachers were trained with in-person and that's all their experience has been. And so how, you know, we've been like documenting how teachers have been adjusting to that. And, you know, I think even more so than that, we're also starting to think through, you know, what are some things that can stick next year? Um, That, you know, some things that teachers are trying out, you know, Mm -hmm. one thing we know for certain is that every single child has had a very different experience uh, with remote learning, or actually just learning in general this year. You know, just first off, some schools open, some schools open hybrid, some schools never open, so the students are remote. Um, on top of that, you know, some students uh, have a great home condition or they are, um, you know, we know we've heard from some reports that introverts are just really thriving right now and like loving the, <laughs> you know, like, you know, they are, you know, appreciate the choice or like being able to kind of uh, blaze through or, you know, they're finding other opportunities, um, you know, with online courses to really thrive. Fortunately, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have students you know who've never logged in. Uh, we don't know where they are at, or their internet's not great at home, so they're not doing great in this. So, you know, how are we going to create personalized pathways for students so that when they come back, like we're able to honor not just their academic learnings and where they're at, but also you know their mental health and social emotional learning where they're at. And I also hope that we're able to start seeing you know a more infusion of like where are people's interests, um, where are their strengths, where are their areas of growth that we're able to kind of tailor more pathways for them um, when we get back. And even now, actually we shouldn't even start next year. I mean, what are people doing now?
0: And are you working with schools that are working through this now and creating personalized pathways either for distance learning or in-person learning? Yeah, you- we've
1: we've talked to some schools that have taken some steps and I think that's one of the things that's exciting but also really daunting. Um, you know I think about rolling out you know a tech initiative or a mastery based learning plan trying to get schools, communities to move in that direction. You know, normal times where like maybe like a three-year rollout, you know, we're going to work with the community, uh, get investment, you know, really build teacher capacity, um, you know, and then like pilot it for a second and then like move on and like bring it out. Uh, and we don't, we kind of have to move faster uh, at this point. So, you know, I think about some schools that are finding some touch points um, that they're able to do this. I, I think about a school in Massachusetts, Uxbridge high school, um, You know, they realized foreign language is actually a really nice place that they can use mastery-based learning. um, And the teachers really bought into it. And, you know, students are able to work on a pathway, do listening activities, work on the grammar, and then come back whole group. And, you know, do some like talking exercises or even in partners. So they were able to kind of find ways to kind of incorporate those kinds of things on there. And I also think that there, the schools that have thrived during this time were schools that had set up kids for success in this kind of setting in terms of developing independent skills for students. So if you had taught kids how to set goals, you know reflect on your progress, reflect on your data, those schools I'm not saying blanket, have done well, but like largely um, have found more success than others, where, you know, if you went to a school where the teacher was at the center, everything was directed through them students now don't have a teacher all the time, it's much harder. Um, you know, I think about Dallas Independent School District, and, you know, they have a really, really robust personalized learning department, and they support a ton of schools going through these individual pathways. So it's not uncommon, like you can walk into schools, um, you know, pre-pandemic, of course, uh, you know, kids are working on choice boards, kids are thinking about goals, they know their data. And so when they transition to remote learning for a bit, students were able to get, regulate, know what they were on, um identify their interests ask for help when needed and that's been really cool to see that those foundational skills were able to translate to remote for a lot of students
0: yeah that's one of the things that we found as well so our school is really focused on personalized learning and building yeah. independence and student agency and we found when we went to remote learning it was challenging to do a specific english language arts lesson or a specific math lesson where a teacher is presenting material and then students are expected to work on it along with them. But in the project groups that we had in the afternoons, kids were engaged, kids were asking questions, kids awesome. were building their own parts and, and inventions to go along with their project. And so it, it's it been really interesting as we look at this moment in time and, and education as a broader, you know, in the broader term you know, when we look at what's really important and what skills do kids need to be successful in life? Because right when we're working, once we move on, once we're in high school, once we're in college, once we have a job, there's not somebody sitting there telling you what to do and feeding you information all the time. And so how do we use this time and these lessons to help our schools move towards building those skills?
1: Absolutely. And I'm guessing there are many people who suddenly switch to remote work, you know, having to work from home that who are also similarly struggling with, oh, like there's not the peer accountability. Like I'm at home right now. Like how do I, and and I know plenty of adults, myself included, who struggle with executive function, with setting goals, making sure I'm not procrastinating or other things like that. Um, But yeah, it has been really interesting to see what are these skills that kids need on that aren't just like, you know, math and reading? Uh, What are these other skills that kids need to thrive, not just now, but in the future?
0: Yeah. So you also talked about an interventions approach as kids are coming back to school and the differences between kids' experiences, both academically and social emotionally, and just with their home life and their general experience with, with the pandemic and with what's happening. So how are schools creating a more, I guess, a more personalized interventions approach that you see as we go back?
1: Yeah, I think that this is something that schools are really grappling with right now. And I will say I feel for all school leaders, including yourself and others, like trying to figure out what is the right approach um, as they return next year. Uh, And because there's also so much to deal with right now in the moment as well. So you're already at capacity now and starting to think through next year. Um, So I know these are some nascent plans and some ideas that have been thrown around uh, and people are still thinking about. You know, I think about um, we're not working with them directly, but Cleveland um, had talked about, you know, maybe we need to get rid of age based grades, you know, if people are coming in and with such range and as a former teacher, like I taught sixth grade math and kids came in at all kinds of ranges and, you know, before all of this and, you know, next year is even going to be more pronounced mm-hmm. on there. Uh So I think, you know, there's a few different things that we've heard, Uh, you know, even in the time of remote learning, we've seen some school districts start playing around with the role of the teacher. Like, does every teacher need to be doing the same thing? Like, does every teacher need to be lesson planning, grading, um, pulling small groups, what have you? Uh, We've heard of some districts who tried out, hey, this teacher's really good at online instruction. Like they should be the ones teaching like whole group. Like they need to be the one lecturing. Mm-hmm. Other teachers are gonna be there afterwards to then start pulling kids out for small groups and providing intervention and doing that small group approach. So that students are able to get that, you know, small group attention that they need. Others are really good at lesson planning and like they're the ones who should specialize on that. So I do think like there is an opportunity for us to start playing around with this and like the roles and what are certain teachers really good at and how do we leverage that even better on there. I do wonder a lot about um, the interventions approach and schedule wise and other logistics on there. But I think like, you know, one small thing that we've seen is lots of schools have had advisories before the pandemic where they have small groups uh, with an an advisor where they're talking about social emotional learning skills, um, able to connect with peers in a safe space. Uh, You're also seeing a ton of districts as a result of the pandemic, you know, designate one staff member for at least, you know, a small group of students so that they're able to check in on them, make sure that, you know, if they have any questions. And so I think you're going to start seeing like that approach also still translate next year um, as more and more schools go in person. Like at the very least, is there one adult in the building that every single student feels like they have a strong relationship with, you know, whether it's like a formal one, like an advisor or a check-in on here as well. I also think that after we assess students quickly to see where everyone's at, um, which is also going to be no small lift. And so I'm not minimizing that on there as well. But I wonder, you know, like are we able to devote more time to small group interventions? Because there's going to be a lot of backfilling that kids are going to need on there as well. There's going to have to be a lot of questioning of like what are the the key things that kids need to learn this year? How do we pull kids out for small group instructions so that kids are catching it up? I think there's also a role that technology can play here. Can students learn asynchronously and then can teachers plug in if students are struggling um, and really uh, have a gap on there as well? So I think there's a lot of questions for next year, not so many answers yet, but I'm heartened to see that people are starting to ask these questions and not just say, well, we have to just do it because that's the way we used to do it. The one thing that gives me pause is everyone's life was upended this year, like last year and this year as a result of the pandemic. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people from students to parents to teachers uh, to principals and others may long for quote unquote normalcy. Um, and so what are the things next year What are changes that can happen that are needed, but won't rock the boat so much that, you know, others don't revolt against it? Or how do you start communicating this now to stakeholders so they can expect the changes? You know, I think a low hanging fruit of social emotional learning. I think everyone has realized it's not just a buzzword. (laughs) It's actually really important and that kids have this. But, you know, I also think about, you know, there's some districts we're talking about maybe we should be moving to mastery based learning, which I'm excited for and I'm a clear proponent of. But I also worry, you know, do we have buy-in from others? Do we have capacity? Do we have support for folks as well? Or are people going to be like, I just want my normal A to F rating system like we normally have? So also I think um, leaders are going to have to start thinking about what are the battles that they can fight next year and what are some areas that they can lay foundation?
0: Yeah, That's a good point. As people want to return to normal, how do we keep some normal while still taking the lessons that we've learned from this and creating change? And it's a real, it's a real turning point. And one of the things that I've been most excited about is that everybody is asking these questions. You know, two years ago, nobody was asking these questions. It was a battle to try and have a conversation about mastery learning or student centered learning or building in a full social emotional curriculum. And now it's almost taken for granted that we need to move towards some of these things and looking at You know, what is really important in school, because there are kids who have missed so much. So what are the things that they really need? Uh What's the knowledge and what are the skills that they really do need? And how do we how do we create those intervention groups to focus on those that those kids are getting the skills that they need?
1: Yeah, and one thing that does uh provide me some, like, optimism is, you know, I think about, I, I'm a former director of instructional technology, and a lot of my work often was, you know, training teachers to use a new program or new hardware mm-hmm. or what have you to implement there. Um, And that was hard work, right? Like, you always had those early adopter teachers who were doing all kinds of great work. You had those, you know, who were like, let's just wait and see. But you had some people who were like, I'm fine with pencil and paper, done it for a long time, let's just stick with it. You know, unfortunately, the pandemic kind of forced you know schools to roll out one-to-one devices in a very very quick way but one thing that's been kind of cool about it is you know i never thought like i mean every single teacher now is familiar with zoom or google meet everyone is familiar with that um mm-hmm. everyone is familiar uh, to a large degree with like a uh, learning management system like you know so many people are now familiar with schoology or google classroom at a deep level and i think about you know walking into a traditional district well, walking in virtually mm-hmm. to a virtual pd and You know, hearing these like traditional district school teachers who didn't have much technology beforehand, you know, being like, oh, like we can do that on Pear Deck. We could do that asynchronously. Like that has completely changed. And I think something that's going to be exciting is we can assume a base level of ed tech proficiency that we couldn't before. Um, And so I think that there's room to play. And it's been exciting to hear teachers say, oh, this is something that's going to carry. Like I'm going to use like past the pandemic. Like this is something that's really cool. And I've been wondering about that. So I think that's going to be uh, a new foundation, like a huge jumpstart from the previous years.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it's a way for teachers to also shift the way they're thinking about education and shift the way they're thinking about their classroom, because they are going to have such a wide range of students that when you can draw in those technology resources, now you can differentiate the groups a little bit easier and let kids you know, get some challenge in one area and more support from an educator in another as they work both independently, even within a classroom and with their educator. Yeah, absolutely. So one of one of the things of the Learning Accelerator, part of the mission of the Learning Accelerator is to make the potential possible. Yeah. (laughs) So what are some of those things, you know, even before COVID or looking way past COVID, what are some of those potential things that you're working on making possible?
1: Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, we're definitely still working on these things during COVID. I think we're, you know, like we just talked about, there's an opportunity presented that people are starting to think about these leaps that people can make um, and jump on there. I think mastery-based learning is definitely one of them. Um I think about, you know, what does an A mean? Like, what does a B like actually mean for parents? And it's something so ingrained. You know, we all grew up with it. Parents grew up with it. Teachers gave it to us. Uh, and But we also know that I joke about, oh, you got an A in Miss Smith's class? Like, that's really hard to do. Oh, you got an A in Mr. Johnson's class? Like, he, I mean, he just, everyone gets an A in that class, right? Like, that doesn't mean anything on there. So how do we progress so that students are not just getting seat time? But like, it doesn't mean like, oh, you sat in a class. That means you must have mastered it on there. But we all know that's not the case. We also know that, you know, plenty of students come in with knowledge ahead of time. But that's not honored. Like You still have to sit, sit through the class in order to get the credit. Um, So I think we've been pushing, you know, like what kind of changes can look there? You know, you mentioned your school. I had a chance to look at your school and focus on personalized learning um, and student agency is such a big thing. And I love that student agency is something I think a lot of people go, oh, like that's something for like high schoolers. It's like, no, like this is something that can start early. You know, this is something that kids know what they're interested in. They have preferences. Like how do you start helping them voice their opinions um, and who they are and like start questioning who they are as learners and start developing their identity? as learners and, um, and what they're curious about, uh, what interests them, what scares them, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, and so I think we've also been pushing in that direction a bit, you know, to make sure that it's more student led um, and the teacher can serve more as a facilitator and helping them learn as a partner alongside them. Um, so that's another thing that we are really excited about. And we have seen really, really cool examples of students, whether small things like choice boards, like, you know, here are three activities, choose one of them um, or choose the order that you want to do in it really small on there. But, you know, even things like, you know, how do you show your learning? Does it have to be a standardized test? Or could it be a project? Or can you do a verbal assessment, an oral assessment? Are there other ways to show that you know something? Because we know that, you know, plenty of students know things and they may not be the best test takers. Definitely know uh, material and can show that on there as well.
0: Yeah. And the flip side of that is plenty of students learn things just for the test and the day after it, it's gone. So... (laughs) crammed it all in. And then as soon as you walk out, it's like, all right, what, what's next? I know. I often think about like, if I actually knew all of the things that I had learned, like it, it would be <laughs> phenomenal.
1: Yeah. I cannot tell you, you know, all the, you know, parts of the body or, you know, all those things anymore, but I did know them all at
0: one point. You can, yeah, you somewhere, you've got a test that you got an A on that you, you labeled know. everything. Yep.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I remember some dates in U.S. history, but I couldn't tell you specific dates anymore.
0: No, but absolutely not. And and are the dates important? Like Siri can tell you the dates if you really want to know. That's all instantly available information.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that the another thing that we're also looking at is like you know what is the role of project based learning and interdisciplinary learning as well. Um, it's been cool to see some school districts recognizing that you know a kid can't just sit in front of a computer for seven hours, right? Like that's just not realistic. Um, you know, but can they start developing projects together, especially if there's um, multidisciplinary where teachers are able to jump in together so that students are able to see, you know, that learning doesn't happen in a math silo or a reading silo. Like they're all mm-hmm. interconnected on there uh, and students are able to explore and research. I think that's something that I've seen some teachers start implementing. And even they recognize, you know, project-based learning is hard to plan. It's not easy to do. Uh, but when it's done really effectively, the engagement from students, the learning from students is just so much deeper. I, and I'm hoping that's something that can happen and progress you know, once we return to quote unquote normal.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. It's one of the things that we do a lot of and that I talk to a lot of other educators and thought leaders and other students about. Whenever I ask like, what was the most meaningful thing or what was the most successful class, a student always tells me about a project that they yeah. did. I talked to Bob Lenz a few weeks ago, and he talks about a poetry project that he did in fifth grade that literally stuck with him, took him into education, and that he started teaching when he was a teacher and has, you know, led into PBL Works and building project-based learning. That's amazing. Um, That's really yeah. But it's that stuff that's super impactful when students realize that they can draw their subjects together, they can create a thing, and they can share it with the world. That's really amazing. And that's where we're actually launching a project-based portal, hopefully about a month or so, that'll give a whole project outline so teachers can create their own with a framework um, or use one that we've created to try and help educators with creating and implementing projects. Ah, so providing like a structure so that, you know, it's like, hey, s- start with this
1: and you know, plug in here so that they can start playing around with it a bit and not completely a wide open space for them.
0: Yeah, well they'll have both pre-built projects with full uh, lesson plans like week by week day by day lesson plans or just a structure that they can create their own. Very cool. Yeah. Cuz I agree with you. I really think that that's that's where learners learn the most. But that it's leads a, us go ahead. It's I was going to say it's the sticky learning. Like, you know,
1: yeah. we remember that those projects, those experiences I can't tell you this worksheet that I did was so cool. And like, I remember like learning from it and, you know, worksheets have their place on there, but the deep, deep learning that happens, you know, is from a group project and learning interpersonal relationships, uh, like hands on learning or like, I did a ton of research and I made this connection and I presented about it. Like those are the things that really, you know, stick.
0: Yeah. The only worksheets that I remember were my seventh grade geography teacher gave us extra credit for taking home and coloring in and labeling all of the countries on different worksheet pages that were different continents that had all the countries on them. <laughs> Which I, of course, being an overachieving student, took home and colored in neatly and labeled all of my countries and got my extra credit. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, totally. I mean, I probably would have done the same. By mom. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that I love to ask people, you know, being I run an elementary school, is, you know, what is a memory that you have from your elementary years? And thinking back, it could be a story, it could be a teacher, it could be a project or a field trip, but what's one memory that stands out from elementary school?
1: Yeah, Um, so I grew up in Southern California, and, uh, you know, one of our big units was, uh, you know, every single year in social studies, we studied Native Americans, and I feel like every Californian can tell you about the mission project, like, that they had to do on there, Uh, But I also remember we went on a field trip uh, where we went to an indigenous people like town and just like visiting that, you know, they gave us like gum, which was like these leaves that were really chewy. Like I still remember that taste of the gum um, on there. But I just remember like realizing like, oh, like I I guess like as a fourth grader, I was kind of like, you know, you have these like stereotypical images of like what the media has portrayed like Native Americans to be. And, you know, it's always in the past, like, you know, when you think about like cowboys and Indians, it was impactful to me to be like, these communities are still alive and like present and growing. Like these are not in the past on there. And I think like realizing like a lot of the learnings still had an impact now, I think made a huge impact and understanding like this is why we need to learn these things. Like it's like history is like still very much present um on there. So I remember that really fondly. Um and I remember just like they gave us food, like they had some like uh, it goes like a bread that was really good. I also eat a lot, so that's like so good um, food or sticking out at me on there. But I remember that, um, that field trip very fondly.
0: Yeah, but that created that connection for you between history and present time and why it's important to learn history and how that, you know, draws into what's happening currently, along with tasty flatbread. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That was always very good on there. And you know, I think about, um, you know, the other things I I,
1: I remember a lot in elementary school are like, I did Odyssey of the Mind in second grade. And just like, Mm -hmm that was just so different. You know, it, it wasn't like you come in and learn something. It was like, here's a challenge, figure it out. Like, you know, like here's a puzzle. And I just think that we don't do enough of that with students. These open-ended questions are solutions. Like there's not an a- right answer. Uh, and I remember as a teacher one time I gave to my sixth graders um, this really open question where I told them like, there's no right answer. I just want to hear how you think. Um, and like just see your thought process. And how how much of a struggle that was for so many students. And I realized even for 11 year olds, you know, we had ingrained in them, there is a right answer and a right process to do this, but how do we tap into the more creative thinking so that students can start playing around with uh, those kinds of things. So I I remember um, like those after-school programs were really fun because it was such a different way of thinking about learning and stretching your mind in a different way.
0: That's cool to hear. We've run Odyssey of the Mind too. We ran the program last year. Um, nice. We're not doing it this year with the pandemic, but we may do it again in the future.
1: Yeah, I love it. I think it was. Uh, it's just. I mean, any ways, to just like you know, be creative and get those juices flowing. Um, just really cool, and it just like taps into a very different set of like neurons, I'm guessing, or different parts of your brain.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a different way of thinking. Yeah, that we're not. You're right. We get so ingrained in the right way and the wrong way, and sit and listen and learn and answer the questions that to actually think through a question is really challenging for some people. My father-in-law tells a story. He used to teach a class. He's a PhD in education from UConn. And he would teach a class. And that was part of what he would do is it would come in and there'd be an open-ended question. And this is what we're going to explore this semester. There's not a written out syllabus. There's not a midterm and a final. Like this is our exploration. And we'll you know we'll see what what you learn and what you explore. And every semester he'd have about half the students drop the class because they couldn't fathom like, how them. to research and explore an open-ended question.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I even think about like math as like a for math teacher, like, you know, everyone wants the algorithm, right? Like, I feel like that was part of the pushback is against the common core. And, you know, I love like the best math teachers are the ones who, you know, let kids explore, sh- like all talk and discuss different solutions. It's like, oh, like you represented it in a different way. Can you share it with the class and like show like what you're thinking and someone else showed it a different way. And I think like being able to show people that, like, there's different ways of thinking about it that are all perfectly valid, Um, you know, really pushes you. And, you know, it makes you start thinking, oh, like, I wonder why I like, you know, some people like making lists, some people like drawing and others. And even for little kids, I feel like students are able to, you know, have that metacognitive moment and go, oh, other people think differently. I like this way, like, this is my preference. Um, but maybe I should stretch myself and try it out. So, things like Odyssey of the Mind. It's like, wow, people really think differently than I do. Uh, I didn't even think about it at all that way. I think uh, you know, any ways that you can show that people think about things differently than you is really cool.
0: Yeah. And then it's not only how can I try and think about something differently, but how can I bring people who think differently than me onto my team? Because that's not the way that I work, but this is really important. So yep. how can we all work together? Absolutely. <laughs> Well, great. Well, this has been wonderful. I think we could keep chatting. Um, but I think it's probably time for us to to say goodbye. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate all of the insights. Thank you so much. I had a good time. Um, always can
1: chat about education forever. I know that. Feeling <laughs> on there. But thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.